we're going to be looking at a familiar text for the remainder of today's service. But even with this text and even with the story you've just heard, um, there's still new revelation um, in what God desires to say to us. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. We're going to understand uh, the depth of our calling as followers of Christ. And this calling is for us to be salt and light of the world. Salt of the earth and light of the world. And Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, and I'm using the New King James Version. Um, this past Wednesday, we had an opportunity to use a lot of different versions. We're using one today. Um, can we stand and read together? How about that? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be drawn out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your heart shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Lord, we're just thankful for your word. Uh, thank you for the story that we heard today. Um, pray, God, that our hearts will be moved to do the things that you are calling us to do as your people. We just love you. Give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm always asking the question um, repeatedly, um, if you really understood what you read or if you got a chance to really, you know, think about the words that you're reading. But from the passage we just read, Jesus used this uh, two metaphors for you English lovers to describe those who follow him. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Now, before explaining uh, uh, these metaphors, uh, I want to reiterate something a Pastor Mimi referenced in her last two sermons. And I also preached a sermon titled Carbon Copy. Um, it, it's an important um, point to understand. And it's this, that there's a difference between being a disciple of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. A disciple is committed to following and learning from a teacher with the intention of becoming like the teacher. So when you say, I want a discipler, by definition, you're saying, I want someone who I can follow so that I can become like them. And so it's important to identify what do you want others to disciple you to become, or else you might come away with characteristics you don't desire in your life. So if you don't want to become a missionary, you know, don't be discipled according to the ways of a missionary. Find yourself on a mission field and wondering why. Right? But there has to be a purpose in, you know, in this discipleship relationship. But likewise, when you say you want to disciple someone, by definition, you want someone to follow you so that they can become like you. What did Paul say when he wrote to the church in Corinth? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There was something specific in which he was calling people to follow. He didn't invite them to have an ungodly characteristics. He invited them to 
follow things that would enhance their relationship with Christ. Discipleship is a structured process. Can we say a st structured process? It's a structured process involving a commitment to learning and living or becoming like someone. Notice how uh, Jesus often speaks to the crowd. And when he was done speaking with the crowd, he'd often go in private to explain um, the teachings to his disciples because he was teaching them something. He wanted them to become like him. He's taking on the responsibility of being a role model for them to follow. But on the other side, we're called to be followers of Christ. A follower of Christ is a broader term reserved for anyone who identifies as a Christian. So when someone says, I'm a Christian, what it says is that they've resorted their life to living you know, a life where it doesn't require too much godly effort, right? They just do enough to get by. Unlike a disciple who's taking on that responsibility, someone's like, I'm a Christian and I'm good. As followers, according to our text, as followers of Christ, we have a spiritual identity as salt. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if that salt loses flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now to understand the usage of this metaphor of salt, we have to go back to um, go back in time to understand what happened back then. Salt was considered a treasure. It had enormous value in Christ's time. Now Roman soldiers often received uh, parts of their wages in salt. Salt was known as white gold during the Middle Ages. So the Romans, uh, their monthly allowance was called salarium, with sal being the Latin word for salt, which is where we get the English word salary. So those who get paid from a job are getting white gold. Salt, salary, that's where it comes from. Salt was a symbol of purity, endurance, and worth. Most importantly, salt was a source of preservation and flavor enhancement. So as a preservative, salt plays an important role in preserving meat and perishable goods. Uh, many of us who grew up without a refrigerator, we can relate to the importance of salt as a preservative. Anyone grew up without a refrigerator? All the ones like, a refrigerator? I always had one. Man, I know I'm not that old. <laughs> I can tell you stories. We you know, dig a hole in the ground and we put our food in the ground to preserve it. That's another story. <laughs> but you can relate to this one. Now, sometimes my, you know, my wife or, or, and I, we cook, and if someone forgets to put the food in the fridge, the next day we can guarantee one of the boys is still going to eat it. Now, my wife's flipping out like, who didn't put the food in the fridge? And then Brenton's like, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> and she's like, oh, if he ever gets sick. <laughs> They're like, what? It's okay, you know. The worst going to happen, I just go to the bathroom, right? I said it a lot. You guys are shaking your head. You guys know how I'm at. My wife's like, oh, you didn't say that. But we can eat the food without refrigeration because the salt preserves it. 
But for those living in the Middle Ages, salt was their lifeline. Salary, preservation, all these different things. As followers of Christ, uh, we're all called to mirror the preservative characteristic of salt. Well, what are we preserving? Our mission, if you so choose to accept, mission impossible, is to preserve godly values, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22-23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, can we say it together, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So these values provide foundation for godly living. So we have to preserve uh, the fruit of the Spirit. But we're also called to preserve moral integrity. A moral integrity refers to the things that help to guide our ethical decisions, such as consistency, honesty, transparency, or accountability. And then we're also called to preserve righteousness in a world that's tainted by moral erosion, in a world where principles often deteriorate where the salt of the earth. So we are entrusted to preserve the sacredness of truth and righteousness. That's what we're preserving. But salt wasn't simply a preservation, but also flavor enhancement. And you guys like salt in your food? I don't cook with salt. But salt adds richness, depth, and taste to otherwise bland dishes. We could say that salt makes the ordinary extraordinary. Bell's like, yes. <laughs> Has anyone ever traveled to the UK? Read stories and see some hands going up. There's a perception of blandness in British cuisine. It's mostly true. But it also varies from city to city, or you must at least you know, know where to go. Now, I have relatives that live in London and different areas of, over the UK. So I've been to a few places. I've also you know, been to a few places with my wife. We got a chance to you know, we use Groupon at one point, got on the train, went to uh, this, uh, uh, I think it was a Brazilian place. And we didn't know about, you know, they had this little thing where you got to flip the color. You guys know if you want more food, you know, you just, we didn't know anything about that. So we got there, we sat on the table, and it's almost like you got to pause the food. And these guys are walking around with the food, and our plate's piling up, and we're like, well, hold up. And they're like, if you don't change that color, we're going to still keep putting food on it. I mean, it was just like overflowing, but that was a good Groupon, you know, thing. I love Groupon. But we explored and got some taste of food, but there are other places where the food needs a little bit more than salt. But I also got a chance to explore, I was sharing earlier, with, you know, went to, to Oxford recently, and Oxford, almost everywhere you go, you can find some taste of food. We even found Caribbean food. I mean, it was, I mean we had, you know, curry chicken, curry goat, jerk chicken. That's a lot of food. That no beef patties, but that's fine. See, because of this perception of blandness in UK, people will 
often travel with things to spice the food up. I met a new student coming in. She's never been to the UK. She brought two kinds of hot sauce. You know, you know she makes her own. And she's kind of like, I'm going to pour it on because I heard the food is bland. But an interesting thing about British cuisine is that they rarely use spices until post-World War II because spices were a luxury item. See, the price of spices was high because they had to be imported from Asia. Now, after the Brits colonized India, they could get spices for a much lower price. But even with this reason for why their food is so bland, you're like, I don't care. I want my salt. Nice story. And someone's like, yep. If the food needs salt, give me the salt. Likewise, as the salt of the earth, we're called to enhance and enrich our surroundings. Uh, let me say it in the form of a question. Does your presence add value to the environment in which you engage? Do people want you to be around or they can't wait until you leave? <laughs> See, our lives should permeate a flavor of vitality, righteousness, and purpose into the world around us. And some of you are like, I also would like them to permeate my environment with laughter and not always having a sad story. See, we don't live our lives aimlessly. But it's also not arrogant in wanting to make a difference in the world. See, God designed us to be people of influence. We must steward that influence for the glory of God. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to know this, is that True influence is not measured by visibility, but by the tangible impact of your presence. True influence is not measured by visibility, but by the tangible impact of your presence. Now, I don't have a problem with leaders who remove themselves from the spotlight, because I don't like the spotlight. But I have a problem with leaders if their leadership has no impact while they're behind the scenes. It's a difference. See, when a mother says to a child in the father's absence, I'm going to tell your father. Anyone ever happened to that before? You got to tell somebody? See, when a child corrects their behavior, the impact of the father's leadership is still being felt, even in his absence. The moment that child says, I don't care, tell dad. Now, you can say that go to my household. I won't tell you what would happen to you. But if a child says that, it means that the father's influence has been invalidated. As followers of Christ, we should seek to make our presence felt, leaving an overwhelming impact uh, that transforms the mundane into the extraordinary. See, that's what it means to be salt of the earth. It's a life of both preservation and flavor enhancement. But we learn within our text about the danger of salt losing its flavor. If you're designed to make an impact, 
but you're ineffective. Why do we need you? If you're, you know, hired to do a job and you can't move forward because you just never learn, why do we need you, right? It's like, you know, asking, sometimes, you know, at home, we ask the boys to do something and we go behind them and do it. You guys go behind somebody actually do something? You're like, you ever go behind them? It's not done the way you'd like it to be done? I don't see the hands, but I see heads. Like, can you do this for me? And they do it. They're like, it's not done right. I got to do it the right way. Can you make the bed, please? Oh, yeah. They're like, are they looking? This is not how you make a bed. Like, you know, my wife has a way how she likes the pillows to be done. Do you guys know that there's a reason for the tags on your sheet? That there's a certain way in which it was supposed to be? You've seen some of the ladies like, yeah, you didn't know that? I just put the sheet on how it needs to be going. Like, is it the, the long way, the short way? It's perfect. They're like, no, the tag is in the wrong place. So she goes in and she'll fix it. So our text gives us a metaphorical way of expressing a loss of moral and spiritual distinctiveness. So Christ addresses four distinctiveness we should not lose as the salt of the earth. And the first one is moral compromise. Now, we cannot compromise our ethical principles or give in to immoral behavior. So this tells us that it's possible for Christians to slowly conform to sinful patterns or values of the world rather than living out the principles of the kingdom. When we compromise, it erodes the moral and spiritual foundation of our faith. The second thing is credibility. We cannot profess Christian values we're unwilling to practice. In other words, don't tell me to love my neighbor if you're unwilling to love yours. Don't tell me about the value of community when you're not committed to one. So this sort of living, it robs us of credibility and diminishes our Christian witness. Number three is conformity to the world. We cannot adopt the values and behaviors of the surrounding culture if it diminishes our ability to live out our faith. In other words, we are accountable for how we live our faith in this world. Because here's the thing. If we're not responsible for how we live, the world will hold us accountable because they love to magnify our failures. Fear or unfair, you're judged, we're judged, and how other Christians live. That's just the truth. And so restoring our brothers and sisters when they sin is our best, you know, it's in our best interest because the world will see us all the same. Someone can make a mistake all the way in Colorado, wherever. And they'll say, all Christians are alike. So it's in our best interest to restore our brothers and sisters. Number four is lack of compassion. We should never avoid demonstrating love, compassion, and kindness to those we encounter. When Christians lose their flavor as the salt of the earth, they become ineffective in their roles as transforming influencers on the earth. So Jesus warns us to maintain our distinctiveness, uphold our ethical values, and live in a way that reflects his teachings. So let's not be complacent or compromise how we live as followers of Christ. We also see in our text as 
followers of Christ, we have a spiritual responsibility to shine as the light. Matthew 5, 14, 16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Light throughout the scripture symbolizes truth, guidance, and revelation. We also see in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So light pierces through darkness, exposes hidden realities, and guides us toward righteousness. So without light, we stumble in the shadows of uncertainty. As followers of Christ, we're called to embody the essence of light. And Jesus is what? Who's Jesus? The light of the world. Our mission is to illuminate the darkness that pervades our world, unveil the truth of the gospel, guide others towards the salvation found in Jesus Christ. So we are tasked with exposing injustice, offering hope to the hopeless, and shining the radiant love of Jesus into the darkest place of our society. The question for all of us is, who are the people in our lives who could benefit from the radiant love of Jesus? Or the people we pass each week who could benefit from the hope that Jesus provides? Where have we seen injustice but often ignored it? See, we serve God who is you know, commissioning us to be transforming influence. Much like a lighthouse which you know, stands tall during the turbulent night and guides a ship to safety, we're called to be this beacon of hope and truth for those in need. So our light must be boldly displayed for all to see. Jesus loves you know, conveying, and he, he was conveying an important role for us in our society that when we invite someone to our church or a service like this, it's not about the church that we attend, but it's about finding Jesus where we worship him. Sometimes we focus on our church, but what we're really saying is come to this place where we experience Jesus. So emerge has to be a place where people can find Jesus. That's what we're promoting. So when people come to a place like this and experience the power of Jesus, then they also experience the power of relationship with others. So you are this bridge. We are this bridge between someone's sinful state and the salvation found in Jesus. You are the voice of influence that says, Jesus has more for your life. Now, what is the purpose of our influence? Within these two metaphors of being salt and light, Jesus unveils the purpose of our influence. Verse 16, just read it early, read earlier. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good work and glorify your Father in heaven. In this single verse, we find the essence of our calling, the ultimate objective of being salt and light. Our influence should never seek to draw attention to ourselves. Our influence should direct the gaze of those we encounter towards our Heavenly Father. 
our good works and Christ-like activities should not only be seen, but should also lead people to glorify God. In other words, our lives should serve as a radiant reflection of God's character, God's grace, and God's boundless love. That's why we keep saying love over and over and over. It's important for us. Our actions and words should point others to Jesus, testifying about his transformative power and unshakable love. Now, when people see this transformation in our lives, they see this transformation that God's grace has produced in our lives, they have no choice but in wanting to worship God. Like anything else in life, we all battle challenges and fear. But to find out how do we overcome these challenges. As we embark on this path of transforming influence, we must acknowledge these fears in our life. Now, if I were to ask you guys what your greatest fear is, you'd probably be like, uh, okay, well, think about a fear in your life. Just one fear or two. You guys have a fear? After three, we're going to scream it out. One, two, three. <laughs> I thought you had a fear. Oh, we have some brave souls here. Let's try it again. Anyone fears anything inside here? Oh, have fears? Yeah? See, what happened was you actually had a fear they didn't want anyone to know about. So, you know, oh, you're going to use it against me. Okay. You have a fear that you don't mind sharing? We all have one fear. It's a 1% chance that you guys all have 1% fear, spiders. Okay, so three are going to call it out. One, two, three. All you spiritual folks, God. <laughs> nice, safe one, right? <laughs> oh, man. What are we going to do with all these Christians, huh? <laughs> But we have to find ways to overcome these fears. But this idea of influencing our world for Jesus can be frightening because we may encounter rejection, criticism, and even isolation. You know, being a pastor often comes with isolation. Being a Christian often comes with isolation. And there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing. No. We've chosen a life that pleases God, and sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. It often drives others away. However, let us take comfort in the fact that throughout history, followers of Christ, just like us, have conquered these obstacles in making an overwhelming impact. I know, I mean, I think Rebecca is probably one of the few, you know, who was born a missionary. I know if you ask me, do you love Jesus? Yes. You want to live on the mission field? No. In fact, I, you know, talking to Peter, um, Peter Chung, was like, because uh, his family's still in Ukraine, and, and they've been missionaries for over 30 years, and I'm like, hey, Peter, I know you're in seminary. Have you ever thought about going to mission field? Like, no. I'm not going, that's not, that's not my thing. But I was also talking with 
um, our, 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 what do you call it, one of our members who still lives in Dallas. Everyone's laughing. Right, Jacinta? <laughs> but we're talking about just how, you know, she's talking about how the difference with being in Dallas and being in Berkeley and how we literally find our mission field in different places. And being here in Berkeley, it's a mission field. You guys do have a mission field? See, you guys came here for school and you found a church and then we say, yep, I'm glad you're here. You're on the mission field. Like, no, nah, I didn't come for that. It's a mission field. But nonetheless, God has us exactly where we're supposed to be. And being in a place like this, it can often be difficult in how we share the gospel and what do we say and do I need to go to seminary just to tell people that Jesus loves them. But Christ anticipated this fear. Luke 12, verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Sometimes we have this fear of God are you really calling me to do this? Or, God, how can I share your love to this person? I know they're an atheist. What do I say? Do I need to attend every connect group in this church and then I can go out? Well, the verse says, when the time comes, when you find the person who needs to hear the hope that Jesus provides, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that very hour. See, living out our calling as salt and light requires intentionality and purpose. It involves, you know, individual and collective efforts within our community, our workplace, and our sphere of influence. As Christians, we're not called to conceal our faith or to conform to the standards of the world. No. Instead, we're called to actively engage with our culture radiating the truth and love of Christ. So we have to support and encourage one another in this mission. Together we can be more impactful than if we were alone. Um, this is why as a church, we partner with missionaries like Rebecca, but also outreach programs like Project Peace, City Impact, Foster the City. So we're inviting you as a church to partner with us to not just support financially, but with your availability to participate in community service, to go on the mission field to see how they build wells. You know, it's, it, we all get involved because when you get involved in sharing this life transforming work, then others can come to serve the, the Jesus that we also serve. I'm going to invite the worshiping to come forward. As I'm closing, it's important to recognize that being salt and light is not an oppressive duty. It's a sacred privilege. Serving God is a privilege when we consider how Jesus willingly died on the cross so that we can have an opportunity of eternal life. When we faithfully live out our calling, God promises to bless us and use us as carriers of his love and transformation. 
So as we leave today, my encouragement for us is to carry the profound truth of our identity as salt and light. We want to embrace our role as influencers, protectors of godly values, beacons of God's love in a world that yearns for authenticity and hope. And may we shine our light so that others can see our good work and glorify our Father in heaven. We're going to have an opportunity to partake in communion. But if you're here and you are not a Christian, you might feel like it's a difficult process. But if you accept Christ in your heart, say, Lord, forgive me. It's just that simple. I didn't say living this Christian walk is simple. I said accepting Christ in your heart is a simple process. But we have to die to ourselves daily. Being intentional in the way we live, with the way we serve others. So if you're here, I'm going to pray for you, and you can, you know, we have our Connect card. You can let us know if you've made a decision. But for all of us, we're going to get a chance to partake in communion. But I want to tie this communion into the sermon because, again, we have this mission to share God's love wherever we go. And, you know, back home, there's also added everyone we meet. See, when we leave here, we are going to encounter people who need Jesus. Maybe it's the person at People's Park, the neighbor across the street. You know someone who needs to accept Christ in their hearts, to hear the love of Jesus. And so we all have this opportunity. And as we're getting ready for communion, it says as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. We're not only remembering the finished work on the cross, we're remembering the salvation that it afforded us and how we had this opportunity to share the same love to others to say, you also have an opportunity to accept Christ in your life. So as you're reflecting on your own life, think about the ways in which you have failed to serve God or to share his love. Think about that moment. And we're going to take a moment to pray and ask God for forgiveness. And then we're going to have a chance to take a communion. Lord, I want to first pray for the one here, the one that's listening, who has not made that decision to accept you as Lord of their lives. Pray that you'll help them to receive the forgiveness, ask for forgiveness and receive you in their heart. I pray, God, for all of us here, that we search our lives, see the ways in which we have fell short in living how you desire for us to live how we fail to share your love to those who don't know you. I pray, God, that you forgive us all, God, of our sins. Lord God, as we get ready to partake in communion, will you remind us of the ways in which you have been gracious to us? Will you remind us, God, that we are not perfect, but because of you we can live this victorious life? Will you remind us that we were once trapped in sin, not knowing if we would have a way out, but you made a way. I pray, God, that these moments of remembrance 
be enough for us to recognize the transformation in our lives, knowing that we can have a transforming influence on the world. Will you move in our lives today?